Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Can you believe this? Say it with your chest. Looking to push tempo here, the Pelicans. Welcome in and what the Pell is up. Everybody, this is Believe in the New Orleans Pelicans with your host, Elliot Clough, at Elliot Clough on Twitter. And before we get started, make sure you subscribe and or follow depending on where you are listening to this podcast and while you're, you can do this while you're listening. You scroll to the bottom if you're on Apple Podcasts. You hit the five star and then hit write a review on the bottom left corner. And you'll be able to help us out by doing that. Tell a friend about the podcast. Can never talk too much Pelicans within your circle. Now, this is something I brought up a little bit on that Will Weaver podcast. I said I wanted to get somebody from the NBL, the National Basketball League in Australia, where Will Weaver spent this last year to talk about his career, to talk about what he could bring to the Pelicans. And lucky enough, I was reached out to by Liam Santamaria of the NBL website. He is their lead writer. He's a TV analyst for Australian basketball. He's also a co-host, NBL Overtime. And can't forget, he spent one year, played for the Victoria Titans. No longer a team in the NBL is what he told me, but he did play professionally overseas and actually played with Jamal Mosley over there. So we talk a little bit about Mosley in this podcast as well. A really good one. Liam really knows his Australian basketball. You'll be able to tell in the first 10 seconds of him talking with that accent. So thanks so much for tuning in today, guys. Here's our conversation with Liam Santamaria, lead writer for the NBL website. All right, we're joined by Liam Santamaria, former member of the Victoria Titans in the NBL, current lead writer for the NBL website, TV analyst for Australian basketball, and co-host of NBL Overtime. Liam, we really appreciate you reaching out to the show, you joining us today, and, and how are you doing? Thanks, Elliot. Good to be with you. Um, hanging in there. We're, uh, I'm in Melbourne in Victoria, Australia, and... Uh, We've been under some pretty significant lockdowns um, in the kind of COVID response over the past couple of months. So we're hoping to get out of them in the next couple of days, but um, just kind of hanging in there, the last kind of sting in the tail of the second wave of the virus here uh, in my hometown. For sure. And the whole, uh, clearly the whole world is still dealing with, uh, with COVID. It's, you know, we're, we're just trying to get through and, and we're glad uh, you're doing the best you can down there in, in down under, I guess, uh, to, to say. But before we get started today, Liam is joining us to talk about Will Weaver, current head coach for the Sydney Kings, and Jamal Mosley, his former teammate in the NBL. But before we start talking about those two coaches, in, in reference to the NBL, is there much of a difference in leagues? I know you're in Australia, you, pay, you're, you cover the NBL more as opposed to the NBA other than the fact that the NBA is, I mean, the best basketball in the world, it's, it's a tier above the NBL. Would you say that the NBL is next in line? Is, is there really any big differences in the NBL as opposed to the NBA? 
well, there's some you know massive differences in terms of the the, the quality of um, you know the peak athletes. Um, you know, you talk about the, the the LeBron Jameses and the Steph Currys and the Anthony Davises. Those, those kind of guys don't exist in, in our league. Um, the length and athleticism of the athletes in the NBA is at a whole nother level. Um, but but our our league is certainly very strong when you kind of um, you know, put it up against domestic competitions across the rest of the globe. You know, it's it's the NBA and then it's daylight. Um, but the NBL has really been working hard to try and position itself as the as the next best, as the second best domestic league in in the world. Now, you've obviously got some some very strong ones in Europe, and you talk about Spain and um, and Russia and um, you know the the French league, and uh, there's some very good competitions there. Obviously, the Euro League is a is a, something of a Champions League and a mix of those competitions, but um, that's that's where the NBL is striving for. And you know, I feel confident in saying that it, it's not far off. That um, NBL teams have played NBA teams in the preseason over the last couple of years, um, and you know, for the most part, they've been competitive hitouts. Um, one of our teams went down by one point in one of those games a couple of seasons ago. Um, a number of single-digit um, matchups. And results in those so I think that's kind of shown that that the NBL as a league is is not too far off the pace when it comes to, to being the second best domestic league in the world. For sure and when you get talent like Lomelo Ball, RJ Hampton heading over there and then of course a draft and stash guy like DD Luzada they're clearly being sent there for a reason to develop and play against some of the best players in the world despite not being in the NBA. And like I just mentioned, Didi Luzada stashed over there in Sydney with the Kings. What do you think of the, of the 21 year old Brazilian? I love him. I love a lot about him. I fell in love with, with him and his game actually at the NBA summer league um, last year when uh, it started to become apparent that he was going to be coming and joining, joining the Kings. And we got to, um, you know, I was in the, in the arena there in Vegas watching uh, Didi play for the Pallies and um, I just I just love his game. He's he plays the game the right way. He's uh, you know he's a really kind of locked in competitor at both ends of the floor. He plays the game with a real smile on his face, but a but a passion as well to compete and um, and I love his skill set as well. I I describe him as the kind of player that you can pick up and put into any pro team around the world in any league and he'll fit and he'll, he'll be a positive kind of contributor in that environment. You know, some players, you can't do that. There's their game. Maybe they might, might be a ball dominant guy or um, they only play one side of the ball and you've got to look at whether they're going to fit into your roster or not. But, but Didi's not that kind of guy. And I think he's going to have a, a really good NBA career. I know that the, you know, the Pally's front office, David Griffin, Trajan Langdon, those guys are high on him. They're very high on um, the development that he's experiencing uh, within the NBL and, and, and at the Sydney Kings and under the, the stewardship of, of Will Weaver. And, um, you know, I think over the next few years, Pelicans fans are going to enjoy him coming into the mix and what he's going to be able to bring to that program. Certainly. We've heard a lot of really good things about DD, although he will be sticking around in Sydney for another year. We've heard that he's developing well. 
is he starting to look like an NBA player, would you say? Would you say you've seen a lot of that development in the one year he spent in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the key for him coming into his, his second year will be consistency um, because we saw some real flashes of brilliance from him last season. Um, you know, he's had a, a couple of games where he's, he's just blown up eight threes and um, he's, he's sort of blown a game apart. He was enormous in some big moments in the playoffs last season that, that helped his team get over the line in crucial games. But he struggled to have that kind of impact on a consistent kind of night-to-night basis, which, you know, as you and I know, is, is something that a lot of young players struggle with and it's something that, that, that you know, elite players develop over time. But, but that'll be the focus for him coming into this year to, to, to uh, make sure he's having a consistent big impact night in, night out for the Sydney Kings and, you know, performing at an all-league type of level he had all league type of moments last season but if you can do that on a much more nightly basis I think that's the kind of development that that um that the the Pelicans front office will be looking for for from him this year but there's no doubt he's a he's an NBA level player and um it's just about kind of refining some of those elements and then the other element for him is is um is learning more of the English language you know that was a big part of of the stash decision-making for the Pelicans in putting him in Australia. They, uh, you know, he's obviously um, speaks very little English out of Brazil and um, they wanted, you know, they feel like it's, it's, a, it's uh, to his benefit for his development and, and his, you know, and future NBA career to, to kind of work on that in a, um, you know, comfortable environment. So he's been doing that here. He's going to do that again, the upcoming kind of six, nine months. And um, yeah, that's going to be a big part of it as well. That's something we don't tend to think about when we think about, you know, players from coming, coming from other countries. I mean, we think about Nicolo Melli, who speaks pretty good English for, for being Italian born. And um, we, we forget this, this person factor to these basketball players. They, they got to figure out not only living in these situations, but being integrated as part of the team and, and making friends and, and, and learning not only the language to do the, the social things, but learn the language to learn more about basketball. So this is, that's really important. That's an underrated factor that we don't tend to think about initially. Now, last question on, on Luzada is from what I know, I, I've seen a little bit of tape. And when I say tape, I mean highlight tape. So not anything too extensive on Luzada. But from what I know, he, he appears to be a, a perimeter defender, a solid perimeter defender and a guy who can shoot. So in a way, sort of a 3 and D player. Is, is that your assessment of him as well? Yeah, that is. Um, he's still got some kind of improvement to do at, at the defensive floor in that regard in terms of turning himself into, you know, that type of specialist, the guy that can, you know, he certainly has the ability to guard multiple positions on the perimeter, um, you know, guard maybe the, the one through the three right across um, the perimeter, but he, he needs to become stronger um, uh, so that he can, you know, he can handle situations where he's switched on to bigger players so he can, he can body up and, and, and prevent guys driving by him. Um, so those types, of, those types of things will be a focus for him defensively. He can sh- certainly shoot the heck out of the ball. Um, that, that offensive side for him is, is, really, is really strong. Um, and he can also put it on the deck and, and attack. He's, 
his handle in terms of creating his own shot off the dribble out of pick and roll situations. That's certainly not his strength. Um, there'll be you know, areas for him to continue to work on, but, but the ability to kind of catch, rip, get into the lane, um, finish around the cup, um, there's certainly things that, that he can do. Um, and I know last season they were, they were really working on him with his, with his offensive decision-making, um, focusing on, on you know, shooting um, the types of shots that you know, Will Weaver wants his teams to shoot and they're encouraging him to, to get his knuckles on the backboard whenever he could and, and get you know, a strong attack on the rim and you know, not pull up for, for the mid-range jumpers when he had those types of opportunities. So definitely some you know, key areas for him to continue to work on, but, but that's a pretty fair characterization of kind of what type of NBA player I think the Pelicans front office see him turning into uh, over the longer term. So while Pels fans are in still a bit of turmoil in terms of this head coaching search, not knowing what's going forward, there's a little bit of a bright spot there in the future to, to look forward to, to Didi Luzada, a topic that we don't talk about a whole lot on this podcast, but that's some good stuff to hear from you, Liam, right there. So to the man who coached Luzada this last year, Will Weaver, the head coach for the Sydney Kings, former member of the Brooklyn Nets, organization and the Philadelphia 76ers back in the day during the Sam Hinkie era. So Will getting his first head coaching position there in Sydney this year. What were your first impressions of, of Will Weaver taking over the helm for the Sydney Kings in the NBL this year? Well, I was excited for it. Um, you know, we, we've, you know, he's actually been involved in Australian basketball for a period of time before that um, as an assistant coach of our national team. So he first kind of got onto the Australian basketball scene through his uh, association with Brett Brown um, at the Philadelphia 76ers. And, and Brown, my understanding is, had um, recommended him to our, the head coach of our national team at the time, Andre Lamanis, as as a guy that, um, you know, he would benefit from bringing into the program, can come in and get, is a, is a smart basketball mind, can assist with scouting and would be a great addition to that coaching staff. So that was where he came onto the scene for, for us in Australia was, wow, um, you know, usually we, we, we kind of watch a coach's rise onto the coaching staff of our national team and all of a sudden this guy was, was in amongst it and people were like, okay, who, who is he? What's his background? Um, so I got to know him at that point and, and some conversations with him at, at um, you know, in and around boomers camps and, um, uh, um, you know, trips to the States and whatnot. And then um, I also, he, he w was offered the head coaching job at the New Zealand Breakers, which is the team that the, uh, that RJ Hampton played for in our league last season. They're sort of the, essentially the, the kind of the Toronto Raptors of the Australian basketball competition because they, they're based in, um, our neighboring country and uh, turned that down. It wasn't the right situation for him and his family at the time, but, um, but he, but he went and, uh, and took that King's job instead. So I was excited because um, that was a, a, a King's team that was loaded with talent. They were going to have Andrew Bogut in the mix and uh, he was coming off an MVP season in the NBL and, and um, you know, it's a team that is uh a kind of landmark franchise within our, our league. So they always got a pretty good budget. They were going to have a good roster. And 
I was excited for what he was going to be able to, to bring to that team and, and uh, try to elevate them to a championship level. Now, in terms of his coaching style, I, I saw, I think this was in an article by Christian Clark of NOLA.com that the Kings owner labeled him as a guy who's on the cutting edge of coaching, always at the forefront of the game in terms of new ideas, et cetera. Would you agree with that? Do you think that's a fair statement? I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, he, uh, you know, I think he's been pretty heavily influenced by um, some of the, the really unique basketball minds that he's been, um, that he's worked with over the course of his career. And I think a guy like Sam Hinkie, for example, is, it has been a heavily, heavy influence on him in terms of trying to, trying to find new ways to gain a, com- a competitive advantage. Um, and certainly that's what Hinky was trying to do in the front office and in constructing that, that Sixers roster in the process. Um, you know, guys like Brett Brown, uh, Andre Lamanis, who is a really highly respected coach on the international stage. Um, and he, uh, you know, he's not a, an old school coach in the, in a sense of, um, you know, a ranter and a raver on the sidelines. He's a, he's a calm measured coach, uh, heavily driven by analytics, um, has a strong focus on, on sort of, um, you know, modern health sciences, you know, really interested in, in the competitive advantage that can be gained by, by recovery, uh, load management, um, and these types of things. So, I think that's a that's a fair and kind of accurate characterization, and um, you know I think that would probably reflect the way Will would probably think of himself. Also, under Kenny Atkinson and in the Brooklyn Nets organization, mm. we've we've kind of heard that uh, Weaver is sort of a developmental guy. So, is is that also something that you would attribute to to Weaver? Do you think that he's a guy that can come in and, and take Zion and Brandon Ingram to the next level? Well, I mean, yes is the short answer. Um, (laughs) In terms of the development, um, definitely a guy who's focused on kind of like the, on development. When when he came into the Sydney Kings, this was a team that was a a, a ready to win now organization, but, but he was, he certainly put in place last season a structure and environment that was focused on um, what can we do to position out to best position ourselves to achieve long-term success, to become a franchise that's in the finals year after year competing for championships. Um, And so that was, you know, you can see that play out in that organization on and off the court. You could hear it echoed in the, in the comments that his players would make about, working with Will and um, you could see it in the way in which he, he managed um, Didi Luzada throughout the season. Um, now, certainly a lot of that's kind of uh, based on the, the, the constant um, uh, communication with the, with the Pelicans and what they're looking for with Didi. But, you know, like Luzada could have, could have helped the Kings win more often last season had Will Weaver played him more minutes. Um, but certainly is a guy that's focused on the long-term kind of view with players, with his organization, and, and certainly a development is a, is a kind of big part of that. Okay. That, that's something that 
is definitely uh, the the dichotomy of what we've kind of been fed as as Pelicans fans, as Pelicans media, is that it's either going to be kind of a long-term build kind of situation or the Pelicans are looking to be competitive right now in order to make the transition to being really competitive in the near future as opposed to later on. So should the Pels be a build kind of, of franchise and want to establish long-term success, Will Weaver may very well be the guy. Now, in a, in a podcast, I believe it is the Basketball Immersion podcast, he just appeared on the show and he said, much like what I've talked about with Billy Donovan, now the head coach for the Chicago Bulls, he said he implements a system based on the players on the roster rather than a system that he has uh, established right in front of him that he just applies to whatever team that he ends up coaching has he shown some some flexibility in his tenure with the NBL? Did he do some things differently, switch the, some things up depending on situational basketball or, or depending on an injury or anything like that? Or was it pretty consistent, the type of offensive and defensive schemes that he ran in the NBL this last season? That's an interesting question because I actually feel like perhaps the, the primary criticism of, of Weaver and his – the coaching job he did with the Sydney Kings last season was what was a perceived lack of flexibility at certain times. Um, he had, uh, you know, they had in place uh, very much a kind of a, you know, a, a solid foundation of what they were going to, to do at both ends of the floor. They, they ran a kind of a principle based offense that, that was, you know, allowed, his players to exercise freedom and make, make reads and apply principles at that end of the floor. So that was a little bit more kind of free flowing and, and, and enabled players to kind of make decisions on the fly, according to situations and matchups and the like. Um, but it was at the defensive end of the floor where his team really excelled last season. They were the number one ranked defense in the league without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and look, that was, it was really based around the presence primarily of, of Andrew Bogut, who you, you would know as a, as a, um, a defensive um, guy, a guy who's, uh, you know, can, can anchor a defense, an elite rim protector and a really smart defender. So they had a, a, a defensive um, scheme, which they implemented. Now it was one that was to, to, paint the picture for you, not dissimilar to what the Milwaukee Bucks primarily have done over recent times, especially last season and the impact kind of Brooke Lopez had um, on that team. Um, so that was kind of what they did defensively. But there were times throughout the season where, um, and, and on the week to week, game in, game out, that was really, really effective. And as a result of the number one ranked defense and by some margin, um, but there were certain matchups that they found very difficult uh, guarding, guarding, uh, certainly guarding the pick and roll with their deep drop approach. Um, and, you know, the, the, the understanding was that, that Will Weaver was, you know, he's, he, as I mentioned, driven by analytics and, and the focus for him seemed to be, and he would use the term, well, we're going to continue to chop wood. We know what we do. And we're going to continue to do it because the numbers are going to work out in our favor. Um, the idea was to kind of force uh, ball handlers into low percentage mid-range shots and get run them off the arc, keep them off the rim, and, and the numbers will work out. But against 
one particular team, in fact, against one particular player, the MVP of our league, former Utah Jazz man Bryce Cotton, um, it didn't work. And uh, it didn't work against that team and that player over the course of the season. And we didn't see any significant adjustments from Will Weaver and the Sydney Kings. And then this is the team that they actually matched up against in the championship series. And the big question coming into the series would be, well, will Will Weaver adjust his defensive schemes so that they can better guard Bryce Cotton and give themselves a better chance of winning the title? Well, they didn't initially. And Bryce Cotton came into Sydney and, and tore them up and uh, gave them the business, took a 1-0 lead and, and snatched home court advantage. Um, now, the series was, was impacted um, by COVID. So, A, it was cut short and B, home court advantage was was sort of became a, a moot point from that point on. But um, what we, we eventually saw the change from him in a key moment, which was game two of that series where he not threw that strategy and that scheme out the window, but they made a massive adjustment. They went to a triangle and two out of nowhere. Nobody expected that adjustment and it helped them win game two and even up the series. So it was uh, flexibility was... Uh, a key talking point around Weaver's coaching style last season, um, both a, a criticism and then right down the stretch in a key moment, he showed the ability to to be able to do that um, and, and change what it is his squad was doing. That's uh, interesting because this is, I mean, this is completely something that I just didn't know. That's That's interesting. It appears that flexibility in thinking of what you want to do going forward based on the roster is the type of flexibility he's talking about rather than flexibility in-game, except for in the finals. So that's just a whole uh, whole thing there. <laughs> a lot of uh, information to process in terms of his flexibility. Well, the, there's... The... <laughs> Let's. You might find it interesting to to talk a little bit about that at the offensive end as well, because you mentioned the point there about adjusting your schemes and your um, philosophies and what you're doing to to the roster and the talent that you have at the offensive end. They they played a um, you know a star that was very much around put the ball on the deck, uh, attack the the painted area, and um, drive and kick essentially drive and kick and, uh, you know, a focus on, on getting high percentage shots at the rim, getting to the free throw line, and then creating open three-point looks for teammates. But what was an issue for his team last season was um, they were a very poor three-point shooting team. Um, uh, out, you know, Didi Lizardo was is a good shooter, but was, you know, is, as I mentioned before, it's still a little bit inconsistent. Um, they had, you know, Casper Ware, a former Philadelphia 76ers guy as their marquee player at the point guard position. And he had a real struggle of a shooting season. And then they had some other guys across the roster. Um, you know, Jay Sean Tate out of Ohio State. Uh, um, you know, Brad Newley, who's an experienced Aussie player. Uh, the guys who were not necessarily knockdown shooters. And yet that was a key feature of their game was creating shots for these guys. And as a result, they were the, they were the worst three-point shooting team in the league despite generating a whole bunch of really great looks. Um, and so I found that very interesting because 
it's a it's an offensive system that's that's very modern, um, heavily driven by analytics. They were very effective at creating the the looks that you want to create out of running a scheme like that. They just weren't very good at at capitalizing on it, and um, you know I think that was that was really to their detriment over the course of the season that they continued to have guys who panned out to be low percentage shooters taking quite a lot of shots. It was, it was an issue for them in the semifinal series, um, which they, you know, eventually made some slight adjustments to, but, but it was, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you talking about putting in place systems based on the players that you had. Um, I didn't necessarily see that in action at the offensive end, which with his team last season. Hmm. Well, say one thing and do another, apparently. Maybe he'll uh, switch up his philosophy going forward. That's uh, time will tell on Will Weaver and his systems going forward. But um, I've listened to some interviews that he's done, obviously, referencing the, the few podcasts that I've been able to hear and where he's made appearances. Now, I'm assuming the majority of our listeners haven't looked into it to that same degree, but what kind of personality would you say he has? I, I know you mentioned... His, his, his calm presence on the sideline. And he appears to be that in, in these podcasts as well. But what, what's, your, what's your judgment on the type of personality and the type of energy that he brings to a basketball team? Well, I'll start by saying he's a top bloke. Like there are very, I think there'll be very, there are very few people, if any, who, who meet Will Weaver, get to know him and, and don't like him. Um, he's, he's a guy that... You know, you is one of those personalities whom, when you speak with him, um, you, you know, you feel like you have his full attention, and that he's interested in what you have to say, and he's excited to meet you and get to know you. He's a he's a guy that's very interested in in um, the entire person. You know, when you meet with, when you meet and you get to know Will Weaver, he wants to know about what you do, um, what you know who what kind of family you have, um, what their names are. He remembers the names of your children. Like he's that kind of guy. And, and as a result, um, you know, his, his players love him because he, he cares about them on, on and off the floor. So I guess that's, that's a kind of starting point is the kind of, the kind of person that he is. Um, he, he also, you know, he's a, he's a coach and a person who's interested in, in more than just basketball. Um, you know, he's, uh, he, he took a, a real vested interest in, um, you know, we had an, a, an indigenous round in our league last season. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a round that celebrated uh, the, you know, indigenous Australians, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and, and the, uh, yeah, that those communities and and their culture, um, and their you know everything that they um, they have brought to Australian society over the, over the long term. And he was a coach, despite not not being an Australian, who really was passionately interested in that round and and celebrating um, that culture. Um, and you know we know he's kind of a, you know he's is very passionate about the Black Lives Matters movement and, um, you know, the, the significance of that in his homeland in the States, but also here in terms of, um, you know, the plight of, of our Indigenous population. So he's, he's more than just a basketball coach in that sense. He's strong in the community. Um, and then, 
in terms of his manner as a coach and his disposition, yeah, he's very, very calm, very measured. He lost, lost the plot in one particular game last season where he got tossed uh, in the fourth quarter of, of a close game, but, but it was very, very out of character. It wasn't something we saw a lot of him. He's a calm, measured communicator. You listen to his huddles in our broadcasts. We have the ability to, to listen to, to timeouts live. And um, we, um, he, you know, it really doesn't matter how, what's, you know, it's a run from the opponent. It's a close game. It's a, it's a um, high intensity atmosphere. He has a calm, measured communication um, approach with his players. And, and I think as a result, his team, um, you know, was one that, that never looked flustered um, and, and kind of reflected that, that, um, that element of him out on the floor. So that's, that's kind of how, how I would describe him on and off the floor. And you're talking about the type of person that he is, the, the calm presence that he is, the fact that he cares about these guys as people. And it sounds a lot like the previous coach that the Pelicans had in Alvin Gentry. The, the issue with Gentry was the lack of accountability he had for his players. And there were some situations, there are a couple of videos that surfaced today of JJ and, and Reddick and Lonzo Ball looking at each other after a, a play that Alvin Gentry drew up on the sideline. So the concern when, when we're running into personalities like that for, for a lot of Pelicans fans is, is Weaver going to create buy-in with his, with his players? Is he going to hold them accountable even though he's this really good person, this, this guy who is, is willing to listen, is very empathetic? Is he going to hold them accountable? Well, well, that's the task, right? That's, that's the challenge for any coach that wants to create a, a player-friendly environment um, within a team. Um, the, an environment where you know players feel like they have a voice and they have input, and you know, I think one of the things that I've seen will do do well is strike that balance. Um, that he creates an environment, and I, and I think a, a guy like Andre Lamanis, the impact, the, the influence that he's had um, with with Will in the in the Australian program, um, I see that come through in this instance where um, Will looks tends to create an environment where there's the players have voice, they have buy-in, but then his job is to keep them accountable to what they want to put in place. So, you know, this is what we're going to do is, you know, does, any, you know, does everybody kind of agree with that? Yes. Okay, cool. My job now is to keep you accountable to what you and us collectively want to do. And, you know, we saw that out on the floor at times last season. I remember a, a situation where, um, where Didi Luzada, they'd been working with Luzada, as I mentioned earlier, on, on, on taking the right shots um, and turning down the wrong ones. And, you know, a situation where, you know, there was, I guess, they'd put in place a kind of uh, zero tolerance approach um, uh, with him. It got to that point and, and, and I remember him taking a, a shot that, that wasn't the type of shot that they were after. And, you know, he came out of the game immediately at that point and, um and then I think back to, you know, I studied his, his Long Island Nets team um, significantly as, as Weaver was taken over to Sydney Kings to get a real sense of, of what he was going to do and what he was going to be like. And that team, what he was able to do with that team in the G League in terms of buy-in and accountability um, at the defensive end was remarkable. 
especially for the, the kind of environment that the G League is, which, in, which can, can, you know, become a little selfish at times and, and, and our players can, you know, lose focus on, on the little things that you need to do to win. Um, the, the, the how locked in that his players were on that Long Island Nets team to um, the, the, the schemes that he had put in place defensively was, was incredible. Um, and I've, I've seen very few teams over the years as locked in, as accountable at that end of the floor as what that group was and what his Sydney Kings team were um, last season. So that, I think, has been a strength of his in his short head coaching career thus far is the ability to strike that balance, create a player-friendly environment and one where accountability is a key feature. Well, Liam, I can tell you that basically nobody who is a New Orleans Pelicans fan is looking for another Alvin Gentry. So that is very good to hear. We really appreciate you shining some light on that. Now, uh, I've got all I need on, on Will Weaver. Should I have any questions? I'm sure we'll, we'll be able to run those by you. And if we have any fans that want to ask anything about Will Weaver, we'll, we'll be in contact. But another coach that you know a decent amount about, because we talked about this before, the show started is he was your teammate on the Victoria Titans for the sole year that you played for the franchise. And that's Jamal Mosley, current assistant head coach for the Dallas Mavericks. So in your playing days alongside Mosley, we kind of know he, he's a guy who garnered respect. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But was he a guy when you played alongside him where you just looked at his demeanor, looked at what he did on the basketball court with you and your teammates, and you said to yourself, he's going to be a coach someday? You know, I didn't at the time. Um, but, but, but as I look back, I think in hindsight, I should have. Um, but, you know, heck, I was a, a youngster at the, at the end of that <laughs> roster, just kind of trying to keep my head above water. So at that point, I wasn't kind of looking, at, looking across the roster and perhaps thinking those types of things as I, as I tend to do more so now. <laughs> but he was a great teammate. I can tell you that, you know, and we're talking nearly 20 years ago now, but, um, you know, he came into our league uh, and uh, we, you know, ours was a, was a very deep, talented roster. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times in, in, in leagues like ours, you know, imports come over from the States and, and they are, they're the guy, you know, and they're, they're looking to put up big numbers and, you know, move from, from that deal onto a, a new bigger contract, some either in that league or elsewhere. And um, as a result, it becomes difficult to, to sometimes to bring imports into what is already a talented team, a team full of kind of high-level local players. That was never an issue with Jamal Mosley. Um, he came in and, and uh, the coach brought him off the bench and... He just embraced that role and played his way into a best six-man uh, award at the end of that season. Uh, he was an impact guy off the bench, a high-energy kind of um, uh, like passionate guy. He was, um, you know, he'd come in and um, really kind of change the tone of games. He, would, he, would, he was a guy who kind of played a little bit bigger than he is. He was a bit of an undersized power forward. And yet, just with his energy and his, um, his enthusiasm um, and his physicality, 
he he would hold it down at the four for us and you know he would he would have big dunks and and you know flex to the crowd and you know always play with a big smile and sometimes a little bit of a snarl on his face and was a much loved uh, member of our team so I have really fond memories of of playing with him and have kind of caught up with him from time to time over the years at the NBA summer league and kept tabs on his on his coaching career and you know I can't really talk too much about him as, as a coach, but certainly my, my reflections on him 20 years ago as a teammate are, uh, are really positive ones. Well, given that the Pels for right now don't necessarily have a player like that, it would certainly be awesome to have a coach like that on the bench, whether or not he's, he's in doing workouts with them or, or participating in practice. If he brings that energy, that's certainly something that the Pelicans can use now from what we've heard what I've heard in articles in podcasts he's definitely a guy that would garner respect like I mentioned in a locker room as a head coach is that something that you you would agree with that sentiment was was he that way as a player at the very least yeah he has a he has a presence um Jamal um he's he's a kind of guy that you know uh, even you know he he has a he has a presence, but he also has like a um, an ability to kind of get along with all different types of, of folks. I remember him as a guy who, in our team, rec- you know immediately recognised that that we had some kind of legends of Australian basketball on that team, and he respected that from day dot um, and didn't try to kind of you know be a cat amongst the pigeons. Um, respected, you know, the, 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 where he sat in the pecking order of that team. And yet also, uh, so he was able to get along really well with, with those, you know, top players, but he also kind of had time for the guys at the end of the roster. was a guy who, you know, I really enjoyed chatting to and spending time with. And I always felt like he gave me the time of day, even though I was, you know, one of the, one of the, the younger guys on the roster. So certainly my experiences of him, are um, you know fit well with that description? As I said, I haven't had much to do with him from a from a coaching perspective. I haven't been able to watch him coach uh, up close and personal. So, um, but it doesn't surprise me, knowing my experiences of him way back when, that that that's the kind of um, you know picture of him these days. Sure. And like you said, given that you don't know a ton about his coaching philosophies or his style, from what you do know, as, as him as a player, as a person, the Pels have struggled for a long time in terms of building a culture, in terms of establishing something there in New Orleans that will be a franchise that will be in contention from, from year to year. Do you see him being a a culture changer, a guy that will come in, instill what he believes in, and and get those players, like we talked about Weaver, getting those players to buy in, whether it's based on his basketball schemes or or who he is as a person? I think you could safely say that. You could feel confident about that. I mean, a guy like him who hasn't, you know, didn't have an NBA career as a player um, and – you know, isn't kind of like, you know, walking into jobs as a result, you know, getting a head start in, in that capacity. You, you know, he's been able to develop and garner respect within the, 
within the NBA community with, uh, from you know both players and and other coaches based on those types of things, based on who he is, what he brings to the table, um, you know, and, and what kind of impact that he can have within an organization. So, you know, in that, you know, in that regard, I think you can, you can um, have confidence in terms of his ability to establish a culture. And then certainly looking back on my experiences with him 20 years ago, um, <laughs> you know, it rings true in that regard. He was, he was a, a great piece to our puzzle on that team in terms of the, the atmosphere within the group, the culture that we had and the guy that he was playing under Brian Gorgian, um, the greatest coach in, in our league's history. Um, that's, that's what he is renowned for. So he certainly experienced here in Australia. Um, what a, a, a really good culture of an organization is like and, you know, no doubt he's continued to experience that in, in his stops in, you know, in Denver and Dallas and the like in the NBA. Now, to wrap this all up, I'm, I'm going to return back to Weaver for a second here. Right now, it appears that the odds-on favorite for the Pelicans head coaching position is going to be Stan Van Gundy, guy who's been out of the league for a couple of years, but has emerged as the favorite in New Orleans, at least for right now. The possibility of Weaver coming over and whether, whether being the associate head coach or just being an assistant on this staff, do you think he fits in and, and does something, uh, it contributes to this staff well from an assistant coaching position? Does he step in? Does he complement Stan Van Gundy very well? Look, I said the other day, it, it's only a matter of time um, before Will Weaver is on the front row of an NBA bench. Um, whether that's as a head coach or an associate head coach, it's a matter of when, not if. Um, he's a rising star in the, in the coaching ranks in that regard. Um, and, you know, there are some really smart organizations um, with, you know, really kind of savvy front office decision makers, the Pelicans with David Griffin, um, the Oklahoma City Thunder with Sam Presti, or, you know, involved in the interview process with Will Reaver right now as well who are taking a really strong, long look at, at Weaver at what he can bring. And, you know, that's, that's for good reason um, because I think he is going to be a, a really good NBA head coach at some point. Um, maybe that starts now. If not, um, I think, you know, any team would, who is looking to construct their coaching staff would, you know, do well to bring Weaver into the fold. Um, you know, if they, if that means, um, you know, assisting a guy like Stan Van Gundy, um, you know, I think that would be, you know, or a guy like Kenny Atkinson, for example, I think that would be a great result and certainly something that the teams should be looking to do because, you know, he brings a lot to the table. He has good experience as, as an assistant. He knows how to play that role and, and, and what that involves but he's also going to become a really good NBA head coach at some point and bringing him into the program as a guy to, to develop in that regard, I think would be a smart play as well. Folks, he is Liam Santa Maria at Liam underscore Santa on Twitter. If you want to see some of his writing, you can check it out on the NBL website. And of course you can always check out NBL overtime as well as NBL overtime, a podcast. It's uh, it's, a, I would say right now it's a vodcast. Okay. Um, so you can check it out. Yeah, you can certainly check it out on, on YouTube, um, but on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of those places. But 
during the season, it, it runs on, um, on TV here on ESPN. Awesome. Well, there you go. And if there's any point in time where we hear some breakdown of Didi Luzada or any other potential Pelicans player, I'll definitely make sure to share that from you, Liam. So thanks so much today for joining us, Liam. Uh, you're the man. Thanks, Elliot. Good to be with you, man. And there you have it, Pels fans, our conversation with Liam Santamaria, lead writer, lead writer for the NBL website, co-host of NBL Overtime and analyst, TV analyst for Australian basketball. Again, you have any questions about this? You have any questions about Will Weaver? You want me to ask Liam? He and I are connected over the DMs on Twitter, and I'm sure he'd be more than open to talk more about Will Weaver at any point in time. So we might have him back on should Weaver be hired here at any point in time soon. So let us know if you have any of those questions. In the meantime, make sure to go follow at Elliot Clough on Twitter. Subscribe and or follow depending on where you are listening to this podcast. Leave a rate and review if you are on Apple Podcasts. Do it! And check out all of Believe's podcasts on Believe.com or head over to anywhere you're listening to this podcast and just type in believe you'll be able to find out what other podcasts they have you can always check out the bird rights for some more pelicans content from guests like ollie cosell chris connor preston ellis david grubb kevin barrios and the other fellas on staff there with the bird rights Again, folks, I think I mentioned it before, but we are really trending upward and, and really appreciate you turning in, tuning in to this podcast. Folks, I am Elliot Clough, and this was Believe in the New Orleans Pelicans. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.